Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Both cyber and supply chain security are high priorities around the world today, and that includes being a top priority on the United States government's policy agenda. The solar winds and Microsoft attacks have demonstrated the continued vulnerability of cyber defense for both governments and business networks. Experts are working to eliminate critical supply chain vulnerability, and we are fortunate to have one of these experts on today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. Alan Friedman. Alan is one of the unsung heroes of government work as the Director of Cybersecurity Initiatives at the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, known as NTIA. It's a branch of the U.S. Department of Commerce that advises the White House on telecom and technology policy. Alan has been one of the most outspoken advocates for there to be an adoption of a software bill of materials, or as he calls it, an SBOM. Alan is spending a lot of time proselytizing the idea of a formal record containing the detail of supply chain relationships and the various components used in the creation of software and their third-party relationships. SBOMs would enable more detailed knowledge of supply chain components and how they interact, essentially a nutrition label for software. Alan joins us today to explain what SBOMs stand to contribute to the American Cyber Toolbox and how NTIA is working with industry and other government agencies to promote their adoption. Alan, thank you for joining us today on Explain to Shane. First of all, I owe you an apology. I had no idea that this whole time I should have been calling you Dr. Friedman and then giving you the option to let me call you Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so do I have permission to call you Alan, Dr. Friedman? Please, please call me Alan. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> awesome. And I am getting ready for this podcast. I have so enjoyed the multiple availability of you on YouTube and other places where you've done these really great explainers on a very tricky topic. So I'm excited that you're going to take the time to do it for us today on, on the podcast. But you've been working on something called SBOM. So let's just start with, with what does SBOM mean? An SBOM is a software bill of materials. So Essentially, you can think of it as a list of ingredients for software. You go to the store and you decide you want a non-biodegradable snack, so you get yourself a Twinkie. It will come with a list of ingredients. And one of the core questions around security and technology today is, hey, why don't we have that level of transparency for the software that runs our lives and our critical infrastructure today? So the vision behind a software bill of materials is just to have that level of transparency, making sure that we have some data about what's in it. Now, why is that important? Well, software isn't hewn out of marble by some monk on a Greek island someplace. It's assembled, and it's assembled out of other pieces of software. If we wanted to torture our ingredients list metaphor, some of those ingredients are fresh and healthy and nutritious, and some of them are stale and rotten and may have things that may be bad for us. And as we try to understand what healthy software looks like or what hygiene software looks like, the first step is just having transparency. And we think this is something that can really help the marketplace as well. Again, the first step in an efficient marketplace for quality software and secure software is the note we have. So I have to say, I was, I have a bit of a squirrel brain this morning. I was completely, <laughs> when you're like non-biodegradable snack, I was like, why would anybody do that? And then you didn't, you, you missed the point where you say there's beef tallow in <laughs> the, the Twinkie, which then of course is supposed to horrify anybody who was trying to not eat a beef byproduct. So I just going to add that. 
And I think that underscores this point about transparency as the starting point. Having this data won't solve all of our problems, just as looking on a list of ingredients won't magically allow me to stick with some diet that I've committed to. What it does do is it gives me the tools to think about that. And so you and I might be okay with ingesting something with beef cattle in it, but we all know people for whom there's a restriction or a dietary requirement where they would want to not have that. And this is about giving people the tools and the data upon which we can build. So is part of this effort to automate that, and we'll stick with the the non-biodegradable Twinkie for a minute here. So if I were to like take a scanner and go and and read that, it would automatically put up a, a red bullet saying, I don't, you don't choose to eat these kind of things. So therefore the software would say like, oh, you're a no-go on a particular thing that might be in the supply chain of that software. Is that your plan there? I think anyone who's talking about anything in security today needs to be thinking about automation there because the scale of software is so large, right? There's the famous Mark Andreessen line that software is eating the world, but the software itself is quite large. So there's an old quote floating around that there are more lines of code in a modern F-150 pickup truck than there were in the space shuttle because all of the software is now big. And as we've transitioned to a world where instead of in, in IoT, we now have chips that are small and powerful enough that we've said, rather than building custom code for everything, we just throw an operating system on it. So it's now much cheaper just to write basic, easy software and throw it everywhere. So we need to be thinking about automation. So automation in terms of generating this data, and we can talk about that a little bit and getting to the weeds there, but also automation in terms of consuming this data. Now, what we don't want to do is create an entire brand new set of things to worry about. We can do this well. This is just something that will integrate into how we're already thinking about software. So for example, most organizations today use third-party tools to manage their vulnerabilities, right? So you have an arbitrary company, it's got a bunch of software running on its networks, and then they have a tool that will sort of manage it. They're either called asset management or vulnerability management, where they'll say, hey, what's on my network and is it up to date? Is it patched? These are things that are now generally part of the cybersecurity landscape. We want to make sure that SBOM can support those use cases so that it can have, it slips in and it, it's part of my tools already. It's going to be a slight digression too, but you just reminded me about, I was reading about a coder who said he felt bad because he knew his old code really needed to be rewritten. It took so many cycles that it just was a waste. And so he, and to his credit, took time to like go back and actually tidy up his, his code now that he's smarter and knows how to write better code. And he said it'll use less energy, which is actually good for the world. So I know that software seems sometimes mm-hmm. a little bit not so entertaining. I find it very interesting to see what people are doing in that space. And your examples about the supply chain on software are also fascinating that you talk about. There's just so many pieces involved to it. And then for anybody in the cybersecurity space, that means there are lots of opportunities for trouble or challenges in that area. So what is it that you're doing to encourage the industry to play well together in this space? So first, I want to be clear, this is not a new idea. The you mean cooperation in general? The, the <laughs> cooperation in general is, not a, is a wonderful idea that we invented. And in fact, Keep going. <laughs> the, the, the idea of uh, software of transparency in the supply chain is, is not a new idea. In fact, we use the term software bill of materials as a head, to, head nod or tip of the cap to 
the idea of a bill of materials, which is something that comes from supply chain management going back to the 40s and 50s and uh, the Deming supply chain revolution. And in fact, it was even proposed in legislation back in 2014, would have required everything that the Department of Defense bought to have this idea of a software bill of materials back in 2014. Now, that idea wasn't very popular. In fact, it was met with a lot of opposition. And it's important to understand why people didn't like it. And some of those were slightly venal. So it's not clear how many of even the most sophisticated companies in 2014 could actually claim that they were following all the rules for using open source and listening and listing all their licenses, which could have gotten them into trouble if they had had to disclose that they weren't doing that. I think that's a much better understood risk today. Let's do that for a second. So when I was preparing mm -hmm. for this, I actually took the time because after watching you talk about the Twinkie so many times, I went and said, well, okay, Coca-Cola, notorious for having, you know, it, it has to have a nutrition label. So it tells me, you know, its ingredients are carbonated water, high fructose corn syrup, caramel color, phosphorus acid, natural flavors, and caffeine. <laughs> and then I'm like, I guess the secret sauce is how much and to, you know, what percentage in that? Because it brought a lot of questions to me about intellectual property and open source and a lack of understanding maybe of, you know, what is important to is to keep as proprietary and what is important to share. And I think you're asking a lot of really good questions around that, those parameters. So was that part of the problem that you are helping work through since 2014? I think, I think so. We wanted to sort of come up with some basic rules of the road because that's what we didn't have sort of uh, when we've had our first meeting and NTIA, which is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce, has developed... Which is my personal favorite, by the way. The, <laughs> oh, I love NTIA. You know that. Uh, love you guys. We, yeah. So we call this the multi-stakeholder process. And if you roll your eyes at hearing it, I'm the guy who has to say it a lot. But it I brings think me into the, the room, model you know that. Multi-stakeholder <laughs> <laughs> process, uh, I'm in. <laughs> yes. But the, the, the model behind it is to say the government doesn't have a vested interest in what the solution is. We just need there to be a solution. And so our approach is to try to bring as many of the perspectives to the table as possible and help facilitate the community finding a solution. And so for this case, one of the first things we had to do is actually define it. We kind of knew most people showed up with an idea of what it was, whether they were for it or against it. And the first thing we had to do was sort of put, them, put everything on the table and make sure that we had a shared vision, especially what a minimum viable SBOM was. And then building on that, we had to say, well, what do we have today that we can work with? And what are some of the risks and challenges? So, for example, on the intellectual property side, I like the analogy of and natural flavorings for two reasons. One, having a list of ingredients doesn't, even if I have the fullest ingredients, doesn't tell me the recipe. There's a big difference between knowing what's in it and being able to replicate it. I can't make an Oreo just by looking at the list of ingredients. And the second thing is this natural flavoring idea allows people to say, hey, you know what? There's still some stuff I'm not going to tell you. but I have to tell you what I'm not going to tell you. And that's something we've built into our model of thinking about this is the idea of known unknowns. So that whenever you tell someone what's in your software, you also have to tell them what you're not. You have to tell them some information about what you're not telling, which could be because you don't know, right? You're using some other supplier software because it's transitive, right? It's a big tree. Or it could be that you just simply aren't comfortable sharing that data. 
But in either case, now your customer or your downstream user can say, all right, now I know about this lack of understanding. We can have a negotiation. I can say, hey, tell me more. I can say this is fine based on my tolerance of risk. I can hire a third-party security tester to make sure that I'm not, you know, there's nothing extra risky in the secret stuff, and that's okay. We can move on from there. Again, the starting point is this notion of transparency. You talk a lot about the supply chain relationships with various components and the use of building software and also the third party. And I think the thing that comes to mind, and I hate it always, but Facebook's given us so much to talk about, is you know what happened with, in 2016, the idea that they had third parties that were utilizing their process and people either weren't asking the questions or didn't read the entire legal document. It's hard to tell what exactly went, went on there. But it, it just reminds us that and if somebody who's constantly putting apps on my phone, I'm, you know, I'm kind of an app junkie. I'm assuming that the operating system is cool with the fact that it's putting it on my phone because I happen to be an Apple user and somebody has vetted that along the way. So that's my level of protection as an end user. But you you bring to the table, especially for smaller you know operations, the idea that something might be harmful in their system. And I'm in the back of my head thinking cybersecurity. So the known unknowns is really interesting there because, and we'll go back to the <laughs> analogy, like I not only will eat bone tallow, I love bone marrow. So like you're certainly you're like, you're not going to upset me. I'm like, eh, okay, whatever. I'll still eat it. Where other people might be like, that's a total no-go. Vegan here. <laughs> you not be putting any bone tallow in what I'm doing. So, you know, no, knowing that there's, I guess what I'm kind of curious about is how you quantify the known unknowns. So they know like they get a go, no go decision in their mind. And that a lot of times are probably in the third party, not necessarily in the prime that's, that they're working with. Am I making any sense? So, you definitely. So, so how do we, how do we think about the known unknowns. And one way to think about our software is, and especially the software dependencies, is as a tree. So at the base of the tree, we have our software, and then we branch up. So the first branch is, hey, this is, if it's a, a you know, medical device, here's the operating system and, the, and, and some other software. And then the operating system in turn uses a cryptographic libraries. And the cryptographic library turn uses several mathematical functions, right? So we're, we're at these points. Now, what we want to do is say, hey, ideally, people would get that full tree. I want the full dependencies of the dependencies of the dependencies. Because again, software is a very large supply chain. And especially once we're in the open source world, that data isn't really private anyway. That's data that someone can go and find out. And we know that the bad guys might so the good guys should also be encouraged to track this data as well. The known unknown idea is to say, hey, when you reach a point in that tree, if you simply can't go any further because of, of either secrets or you simply don't have the information, you just label it saying this is unknown. I don't know if this component has any further dependencies or not. And that way, someone can say, yeah, this is fine. But if you're using an operating system that's commercial, it's proprietary, you haven't been able to get the SBOM for that then you can say, all right, well, I'm going to tell my customer that I'm using this operating system. And now they can decide whether or not it's something that they're worried about, right? Hey, does this operating system have, is it made with peanuts? Again, coming back right, to our analogy. analogy. And this is now a discussion that can happen that, again, takes us a little away from the pure automation space, but moves us into the risk management side of things. And I'll give you another example. The open source world is something that we may want to care about, which is, hey, I'm using an op, I'm using an open source component. It's, it's an important piece, it's an important library. 
is this open source component something that is going to, is actively maintained, that there are people who are working on it to make sure it gets better? And if someone finds a security flaw, that they'll be able to fix it. Because one of the risks is the joy of the open source community is that it's driven by those who show up. And sometimes there simply isn't anyone who's interested in continuing to work on an open source project. And so when I have the data about what components are in my software, now I can take that further action of do some research and say, hmm, who's involved in this project? Now, if it's just a safety issue, well, I want to make sure that if there's a flaw, it can get fixed. If we're talking about something in the national security domain, well, now we want to pay attention because all of a sudden, we're not just worried about benign neglect, we're worried about active compromise. And so now we can say, hey, this piece of open source software is being used in you know, this piece of, say, critical 5G technology. Let's watch it to make sure that no one is subverting. And it's impossible today to watch everything, but now we can prioritize what we want to watch. When you talk about vulnerability management, two points you bring up I think are really important is also end of life and orphan components because those, you know, we are constantly upgrading or those who, you know, modernizing our IT, which we'd love for the government to get more money to do more of that. So where where do those two points come in, end of life and orphan components? Mm -hmm. So this is the, the one of the challenges as we move to modernize is that things just age out of date. And we, in the software world, we talk about maintaining software. You might think of software as I just have to write this once and I'm finished with it. That's not really how software works today. It's not just about adding new features. It's about making sure that things still work with everything else. Even if my software stays still, another thing that it communicates to may advance. So we need to keep things up to date. There's a very macabre problem in the open source world. It's referred to as the bus problem, which is how much open source software is dependent on a person, on a single person remembering to look both ways before they cross the street. And it really amounts to the idea of saying, how do, how do we track what the active support is? And SBOM by itself won't be able to tell you that this component is no longer being maintained or that this operating system is now officially announced the end of life. So for example, Microsoft has announced every so often that this operating system is no longer being maintained. Now, that's important to know because there are a lot of important devices that are still using things like Windows XP. There are medical devices today that are used heavily, people's lives depend on them, that use Windows XP. Doesn't mean that we have to rip and replace those devices immediately, but it does mean that we need to be aware that they're using an outdated operating system that's no longer supported by the vendor and understand what the risks of doing that are. And it could just be, hey, this device, we're no longer going to plug into the internet. Or it could be, you know what, this device is fine because of how the manufacturer built it. But that's a decision that needs to be made consciously and explicitly. Yeah, that's huge. I've been in and out of the government throughout my career. And there have been times where I'm like, are we keeping an entire division of IBM open because we're still using vacuum tubes for the FAA? And the answer was yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, and those are making airplanes decide no go, no go. That's a little scary. And I also work in a division that still had Wang computers just how long ago that was. And they were like, I was like, I'm sure they were keeping a lot of people in, you know, it's like we find out they're in there. I love this is my favorite. There are people that have to continue to use a language which is pretty much dead, but they don't want to replace or they have not gotten the appropriations to replace it. And so you're like, I'm glad to see that you're covering all of that ground because the government's probably the, the most to benefit from it. 
But let's talk about industries. So you've obviously spent a lot of time in the standard space and the cybersecurity space from a, a technical perspective, but how are industries coming to the table in different segments for this? So we're seeing some interest from this across the board, especially as more and more communities have realized the risks of the software supply chain. This is a conversation that's been happening over the last few years. Obviously, post with the sort of very public discussion around the solar winds and Orion breach, there's a lot more attention being paid to this. This is one of these areas where we're trying to sort of manage this from a helping industry help itself perspective. So NTIA, as you know, doesn't have regulatory authority. We don't tell people what to do. Our vision is to try to help the community come together. But it's also a space where having certain regulators imply that this is coming is going to help the industry move a little quicker. So the FDA announced in 2018 that they were going to be requiring new medical devices to have a software bill of materials. Slightly more nuanced than that, but that's what it amounts to. But what they did was they said, hey, we're not going to define this. We want the medical device manufacturers to work with the rest of the software world in the NTIA process. And the broader, and so we've had a bunch of participation from medical device manufacturers and their customers, some of the best and largest hospitals in America, to say, how do we generate SBOM data today? And more importantly, how can it be used? Right? We're not just trying to have transparency for its own sake. We're talking about how hospitals can use this data to better manage the security and efficiency of their medical devices. So... I'm pretty impressed that this is something the healthcare community has been actively involved in. And I'm sure your listeners know that the healthcare community was a little busy in 2020. Yeah. And this I has remained all. a key priority for not just the medical device manufacturers. Many of these companies were actively involved in not just the race for vaccine production, but PPE production and things like that, ventilator production, but the hospitals themselves. One of the co-chairs of the healthcare proof of concept effort is the chief information security officer for New York Presbyterian Hospital, right? Very much on the front lines of the COVID reaction. And during all this, SBOM remained a priority for him and his staff. So we're seeing a lot of interest there, but it's moved on beyond that. We've got some folks in the automotive sector are pushing this and working on thinking about what this looks like as an exercise between the automotive, what are called tier one suppliers, the people who make the parts that go into the car, and the auto manufacturers themselves that assemble the car. In both of these cases, what we like about the proof of concept model is it allows people to experiment and try this with live data. They're, they're talking about real products and live use cases. How do we do risk management? But in a safe way, protected by an NDA or by the Information Sharing and Analysis Center agreement that allows people to feel confident that data isn't going to interfere with the market growth, it isn't going to be picked up by the regulators, and it allows them to, to move forward in a safe space. And we've just launched a third pilot effort in partnership with the Department of Energy and the National Labs to think about this for the energy sector, the bulk power sector. So you mentioned that NTIA is, is very encouraging of this, but they don't have any actual regulatory mandate power to do this. What what are there your next steps to continue this flow since you've, you've definitely got a flywheel vector? Our vision is to continue to be the nexus of these discussions. Ultimately, different sectors are going to have to take this and make this their own. There's a real difference between the needs of the healthcare sector, the automotive sector, 
the financial sector. They each have their own requirements. What we want to make sure is that people feel comfortable adapting this, but still no one, the computer science term is forks the project. That's just an R, not a U. So that everyone is following the same basic model, that there's interoperability. We have some existing technical standards today that can invade us. So we want to encourage people to use those standards rather than going off and inventing something new. Some people may want more data. We've emphasized the importance of a minimum viable model. One of our mantras is crawl, then walk, then run. But we know that there are certain communities that want a lot more data today, especially in the high assurance world. And so we want to make sure that we can complement that work without having to rewrite anything. And then lastly, we, you know, our vision is to sort of have a point where everyone who's interested in this can come and learn about it and build up. And so that's the idea of, of sort of having an SBOM nexus where the entire community knows this is where the status quo of SBOM is. And our final approach at NTIA is to work with our international partners. As you know, NTIA is built around some assumptions that the internet is global. It doesn't belong to any one country. And so one of our goals is to help folks around the world think about this. And we're partnering with some folks in Japan who are very interested in thinking about this for supply chain management. I just had a quick chat yesterday with one of our counterparts in Finland. Who runs their works with their national security and cybersecurity center, and similarly in Brussels and in London and in other capitals around the world, people are paying attention to supply chain. We want to make sure that they're aware that SBOM exists, that there's an active community, that there are existing standards, and you know, governments. What we want to do is make sure that they know what resources are there, what's been led by the industry, and how the community can build on what we already have. Well, I imagine the semiconductor shortage has brought this to the top of a lot of people's agendas in hopefully a good way. You know, for, sometimes you need a crisis to realize you need to up, up your game. Well, Dr. Friedman, Alan, I just <laughs> want to say thank you for anybody who has not, you know, you, you have a moment, you want to get off Netflix, go to YouTube, watch some S-bomb videos. I, I don't know anyone who has mad skills like you do. Like you, <laughs> you've taken the, you're always fun to see in person, but you're a lot of fun to watch. And you also have really good PowerPoint skills. You could do a whole, you can do a whole side hustle. <laughs> For all of those of us who, who don't. So I just want to say thank you for your time and energy to this. I understand how important it is. I'm sure a lot of your colleagues do as well. And please let us know what we can be doing to encourage people to getting on the S-bomb bus. Thank you so much for your time. If anyone wants to know more, they're free to reach out to me. Great. Thanks for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.